Good morning. It's good to have you all on this Sunday. It's a, a wonderful, beautiful day on Maui that we have. We have uh, a lot has happened over the past week, not the least of them being that we have a new president of the United States of America, 45th President Donald Trump. Now, uh, last week, I, it's, it's just kind of uh, no uh, act of providence, I'm sure, involved that we are in Exodus learning about rulers and, and Pharaoh over the nation of Israel, and now we have this change in leadership. Now, last week I quoted John Calvin, a theologian, who said to the effect, uh, when God judges a nation, he gives them wicked rulers, and, and part of his teaching on that comes actually from uh, the passage we are in, as the nation of Egypt suffered for the sins of its leader. Uh, and so last week I kind of noted, um, you know, this past election, I don't think anybody was truly happy uh, about the candidates and the choices we had. Now, nothing I'm going to say takes away from that. I do believe uh, we do not necessarily have good leadership. Uh, we might have better than what could have been, uh, and so we praise God for that. And none of that goes to say that our responsibility as Christians towards our new president, no matter who the president is, is to what? Pray for them. Pray that they would lead in righteousness and justice that as the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord, that he would turn it wherever he wills. Amen? Uh, and so I hope that you will join uh, me, Kahalui Baptist, and, and continue. Christians have this, this dual responsibility that we pray for uh, kings and all in authority, no matter who they be. And at the same time, we have this responsibility to speak the truth of God, that, that uh, things of, that would discriminate or oppress peoples of minorities is evil, no matter who that's coming from. Amen? That's not a very loud amen. amen. We are called both to pray for our leadership and to speak the truth of God's word, to call them to repent and follow it. And so I hope we as a church would walk that balance uh, very well by God's grace. Now, it's also the anniversary of Roe versus Wade. Last week we spoke about abortion and the judgment, how God, in effect, as the, the Egyptian people tossed all of the babies of Israel into the Nile, in effect, they filled the Nile with blood first. What God did in the very first stroke of Egypt is their own actions against them in judgment. Now the whole Nile was full of blood. Every water that was exposed to surface was full of blood, and this was the judgment of God on them. Now, all of that backdrop comes into our passage this morning, Exodus 8, 20 and 9, 12. So let's pray, ask the Lord's uh, help as we hopefully hear and receive his words. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the only sovereign king, that you are a good King, and that you are in absolute control over every molecule in this universe, and every king, president, ruler of countries, that you raise up 
authorities and you take them down and all these things happen to accomplish your purposes and so father we do now uh, as your people corporately lift up the new leadership in our country we lift up the new leadership in our local government and we ask that you would bless our nation that you would uh, work in their hearts such that they would lead and execute righteousness and justice uh, as you would have them to father We pray that you would direct them to the accomplishing of your purposes. And at the end of the day, Father, our hope is to lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, that we might commend your gospel, your message to a lost and dying world. Father, we ask that this morning, as your gospel is proclaimed here and across Maui, that you would draw many, many sinners to repentance that many would come and find redemption in Christ today. Would you do this, we pray, in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. All right, so if you're taking notes, I encourage you to take notes. We've been, uh, as you noticed, as we read, and as I said, we've been walking through, if this is your first time with us, we have been walking through the very famous account uh, of Moses in Egypt and and being God's mouthpiece, his vehicle, if you will, uh, of calling Pharaoh the most powerful man likely in the world, in the ancient world at that time of Egypt, Uh, and Egypt was a powerhouse in the ancient world ancient world, Moses calling on Pharaoh to let the people of God go. Let them go. Set them free. Uh, To give you some, an idea of how important and how big of a demand this was, uh, note that there was roughly, uh, most scholars would estimate, two million people. This is two million people in slavery and being oppressed. And what was the economy of Egypt built on for 400 years? This is no small demand. In essence, all of Egypt's might and greatness and power and sovereignty, all of these things were built and tied to Israel being with them. They were building all sorts of things. And now you have this man coming into the courts in the name of a God that they don't know, they don't worship, and to be honest, they don't care about telling them, let my people go. This is quite the uh, demand. Quite the demand. And it's exactly what happened. And as you know, uh, the story goes and God begins to unfold these these plagues. So we're going to look at our passage this morning, uh, jump in really right in the middle uh, of this narrative account, and we're going to have three points. Uh, revealing his power, that's number one, revealing his power. Redeeming his people, that's number two. Uh, redeeming his people. Uh, and then number three, refusing to negotiate. Refusing to negotiate, and then we'll wrap it up with some application. So number one, revealing his power. Now, we have to remember, we have to remember that the plague narrative, all these things, the water to blood, the the frogs and the gnats and mosquitoes and what we're about to see today, all of these plagues are not so much about Pharaoh, even though we're going to talk a lot about Pharaoh. They're not so much about Egypt. 
They're not so much about the, the actual power themselves. They're all about who? God. God. Who is the main subject in this whole account? It's all about God. Now, God is the main subject, the main actor, the main focus. What is he doing? He is making a name for himself. He is making a name for himself. If you remember earlier in the narrative, Pharaoh asked, round one, Moses and Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked, who is Yahweh that I should listen to him? I don't know him, and I'm not going to let his people go. So God is making a name for himself, but not just amongst the Egyptians, not just amongst Pharaoh. Who is God concerned that they would know his name? His people. This is a statement to Pharaoh, yes. This is a statement to all of Egypt. Who is Yahweh? I'm going to show you. But it's also a statement to his people, Israel. Exodus chapter 6, verse 2, if you're there, or if you want to flip back a few pages. Exodus 2, verse, uh, Exodus chapter 6, verse 2 through 6. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, and get this, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. And then he jumped to verse 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. You see, God's providential workings were not just for Egypt to see his power. They were for his people to know him. With each successive plague, Nile to blood, the frogs, the gnats, each progressive plague, God was judging Egypt's gods demonstrating that they were insufficient and unable to save them. They were powerless, and at the same time, God was showing his own people his love, his power, his faithfulness. As one pastor put it, what God was doing is he was giving his people a testimony. He was giving his people a testimony. God's goal was showing his people how great he was. How awesome he was. He was building his name and drawing them into a relationship with himself. Now, this is often how it is for us as well, isn't it? See, sometimes, and remember, how long had they been in slavery? 400 years. When he says, by my name did I not make myself known to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's kind of odd because you read through the Genesis account and, and his name's all over that. What does he mean he didn't make his name known to them? Of course he did. Is that a contradiction in the Bible? No, 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 no. Remember, to know in Hebrew, to know in that way, is to know intimately, not just this kind of head knowledge of, uh, you know, I know my times tables, but I know them because I've practiced them and applied them and seen how they're always, nine times five is always what? I don't even know. Don't even know. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Right? You guys know. You're like, yeah, right. I'm... 
not to just know factually, but to know in Hebrew is this intimate knowledge. I, I know you. It says Adam took his wife Eve and he knew her. He became fully acquainted with her in an intimate, personal level. And, and so when it says, by my name, I did not make myself known to them, what he's showing is I have revealed myself, I'm revealing myself to you now in ways that have yet un, been unforeseen before. The people before, they did not see the fullness of my power. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But sometimes, for us, we look back over the darkness of our lives, over these long periods of suffering, and in a crowd this size, there's probably some of you right this second who are in a very long period of suffering. It just doesn't seem to have an end. And sometimes we look back over these times and these seasons, and we may even be tempted to answer like Jacob did before Pharaoh. Back in the book of Genesis, you remember Jacob, he goes to see his son Joseph in Egypt, and Joseph, now the second in command, brings dad in to meet, to meet Pharaoh, and Pharaoh asks Jacob, how old are you? And in Genesis 47, Jacob answers, the days of my years, uh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years old. So he was 130 at the time, and then he says this, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. Sometimes we feel like that. You look at your whole life of darkness and suffering, you feel like, man, it's just been full of suffering and evil, and, and it's just been hard. That's, that's essentially what he says. It's been a hard life. And if you know the life of Jacob, he had a hard life. Now, when we look over these dark periods of our lives, we can be tempted to doubt God, to question his goodness and faithfulness. Now, one of the things the plagues teach us as God is making a name for himself is this is really important. God is doing more and has greater purposes and plans than just making us comfortable. God is doing more and has greater purposes and plans than merely making us comfortable in our lives here. He is making a name for himself. He is in the process of making his power known. He's creating worshipers for himself. See, God doesn't want to be one God among many in your life that you just add to the mixture. I'm just going to sprinkle God in through my Monday through Sunday routine. I'm just going to have one God among many gods, depending on what I'm doing, that I'm going to seek my refuge in. God doesn't want to be one among many. He wants to be the only God. And that's what he's doing. He's making a name for himself. He's demonstrating in their lives his power and superiority over any other God to save and rescue. So, as you survey your life, your hardships, remember, just as he was here in Exodus 8, that God has been at work in you. God has been at work around you in ways yet to be revealed in your life in ways yet to be seen, but in time will be unfolded. And know this, that he is still the great I am. That's what his name Yahweh means, right? I am. So you can trust his goodnesses, trust his promises. 
And may God grant by his grace, as some of you are in this season of hardship, and whenever we do encounter that season of hardship, that we would say like Job about our suffering, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. See, because when we're in suffering, we want answers, right? We want answers. What are you doing, God? Explain to me everything. Unfold your secret counsel so that I can understand where this is going. But please know, God is rarely going to give us all the details of our suffering. He doesn't so much want you to understand everything he's doing as he wants you to trust him in the middle of it. He's creating a worshiper out of you. And this is the purpose of God's power displayed so that his people would trust him and him alone and him alone. That's revealing his power. Number two, redeeming his people. God is redeeming his people. Now, recall that the structure of our ten plagues, right? They come in three sets of three, and some of you guys are like, wait, three times three is nine. There's ten. How are they three sets of three? Because the last plague, the Passover, the most important and final, is stands apart by itself. And the rest follow this structure of three sets of three. Now, the second set of plagues, this is the first set of plagues in which God makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So the first three affected all of everybody. Everybody got the Nile to blood. Everybody got frogs everywhere. Everybody gets the gnats and the mosquitoes or lice or whatever it was. That's gross, right? Uh, everybody got that. Now, the second set of plagues, this one, it, God makes a distinction. He doesn't afflict Israel. He protects them, and yet he just unleashes destruction on Egypt. Now, what does this second set of plagues consist of? Three of them. Swarms of flies. The plague of livestock, where Egyptian livestock died, and boils. Now, I'm going to spare you the pictures of all these things, uh, unlike last week, I had pictures for all this for you, uh, but I don't think you want to see dead cattle and boils, amen? Uh, some of you are weird, and you're like, I would love to see the boils. Like, I just love gross things. You're sick. You're sick. Now, we're going to hone in on the flies, the plague of flies, the swarms of flies. Now, the fourth plague of flies, this is interesting, that God brings a swarm of flies such that they're everywhere. Uh, this plague is interesting. This shows us, one, one of the titles of Satan, you remember in the New Testament, they accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of what? Beelzebul. What, is, what does that mean? Lord of Flies. So one of Satan's titles, or what he's known as, is the Lord of the Flies. It's an interesting book. It's kind of a weird book. Some people read it in middle school. It's different. I didn't read it. I read the Cliff Notes, right? It was a very interesting uh, title. And now you see God, Yahweh, using what to inflict destruction on Egypt? Flies. This shows us that Satan who is often called the Lord of the Flies, is also a false god. He is Lord of nothing. Amen. He is Lord of nothing. We could talk about uh, our culture is really big, especially here in Hawaii, about spirits and, and demons, what we would call demons or ghosts, and, and people pay far too much attention. You give Satan far too much credit for the things he does in your life. He is Lord of nothing. Amen. 
especially for children of God, especially for men and women who are temples of the living God, who are indwelt with the Spirit of God. Satan is nothing. He is Lord of nothing. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, the Scriptures say. But he shows through this plague, this stroke, that Yahweh is the true Lord of all things. He is the creator God. Everything, all of the universe obeys his voice and comes when he calls. Whether it be mountains, you know the book of Revelation says one day the mountains will melt like wax. One day the islands will flee from his sight. That includes Maui, sorry, uh, our realty investment here, not a good one, right? One day when the Lord Jesus comes, it's just going to flee before his presence. Whether it be mountains or molecules, God commands all things from the biggest to the smallest. And now, here, he doesn't necessarily use a big thing. Rather, he calls, multiplies hordes of small things to inflict great destruction. God has all sorts of things at his command. And in this instance, it's flies everywhere. Some of you, I don't, are there horse flies in Hawaii? I have not seen a horse fly in Hawaii. Are there? They bite and they're irritating. There's probably all sorts of flies that come here. What, what comes with flies? What do fly babies? Maggots. It's just disgusting. You can just imagine the carnage. There's just flies and maggots and rotting frog carcasses. I mean, this is just carnage. He is laying Egypt to waste with bizarre things. Flies. In this plague, the Lord made a distinction or a division between God's people, Israel, and Egypt. Hear this, verse 22. He set apart Goshen, and this is where Israel lived. And in verse 22, he called them, My people. My people. Uh, but on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, as opposed to who? Egyptian people, your people. I will set apart Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, and that this is the purpose, so that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. So God is making a distinction. So where Goshen lives, or where Goshen is, where, the, where Israel lives, there, no flies. You go into the rest of Egypt, flies everywhere. Walking over here, no flies, right? Must have been very bizarre. Again, the same the plague of livestock, chapter 9, verse 4. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. There's a distinction. The plague of boils, chapter 9, verse 11. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. You remember the, the magicians at the beginning? They, they're replicating God's miracles. They're putting water into blood. They're bringing frogs out. Their, their staff becomes a snake and gets swallowed up. And now in a great statement. You remember that was a foreshadowing. Just as Aaron's rod swallowed up the other serpents, now they are beginning to get swallowed up. And now the magicians can't even stand before Moses because they are so afflicted from boils. It's worth noting that 
this distinction is actually one of the evidences that the plagues are not a natural series of events. Scholars, some liberal scholars like to, like to uh, theorize that this was a natural series of events, that maybe it was just kind of a luck of the draw that Moses was reading the clouds and, and the seasons and just happened to be at the right spot at the right time and, and, you know, all these things were happening. This is one of the evidences that the plagues were indeed a miraculous event. They were the direct hand of God, supernaturally moving the natural orders in ways that are not explainable by natural law. How is it that flies are all around Goshen and yet you just walk right in and there's no flies? Cattle, all of them are just dying all around Egypt and you come in and Goshen and there's no cattle dead and and boils everywhere on the Egyptians and you come to Goshen and there's nothing. See, if it were some sort of communicable disease, communicable diseases does not respect national boundaries. Flies aren't like, oh, Egyptian, bite them, bite them. Israel, no, their blood's gross. Go somewhere else. God is moving the natural order in supernatural ways that are not explainable by natural law. And what is God doing God is making a clear statement to Pharaoh and to Israel. What is this statement to Pharaoh? God is staking his claim on his people. He is planting his flag, if you will, on his people. See, Pharaoh, you're not holding back your people. You're not holding back your slaves, your property. The people you have are mine. The people you are holding back are my people. And what he's saying is, let them go or pay the price, and it will be steep. He is redeeming his people. He was buying them back from slavery and paying the price to release them or set them apart. Now, that's an interesting word in verse 23. Uh, He says, I will put a division between my people and your people. In chapter 8, 23, thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. So that word there literally put a division in the Hebrew. It actually would literally read, I will set a redemption between my people and your people. I will set a redemption. And your Bible might actually even have a footnote. If you have a, a, a little letter or a footnote or an asterisk, and it might give you an alternative translation. It is literally, I will set a redemption. God was redeeming his people. And he was making it clear to everybody watching, Israel belongs to Yahweh. They are mine. Now, that was a statement to Pharaoh. What was a statement to Israel? What is a statement to Israel? This is what it is. I'm faithful. I'm trustworthy. I am your God, and you are my people. Why is this important? Because like we said, Israel hadn't known God like this for 400 years. See, Israel had been immersed wholly in Egyptian slavery, in Egyptian, the worship of the Egyptian pantheon, the gods. They were all sorts of familiar with Isis and Ra and all the other Egyptian idols, but they didn't truly know. 
They didn't know in the way God knew. They didn't know their God, Yahweh. They didn't know the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And what God was doing is he's revealing himself, his power, and redeeming his people. And he's showing all the gods of Egypt, all the Egyptian idols, they are nothing compared to me. I, Yahweh alone, am worthy to be praised. Why is this important? Because Israel falls into this issue again, don't they? We're going to talk about this, but you remember uh, whenever Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and he's gone too long and he comes down and he's got the Ten Commandments, and what are they worshiping? A golden calf. wasn't very long at all before their old practices came up. Where do you think they learned to worship a golden calf? In Egypt. So you see the necessity that God would lift himself above all the other gods and then draw them out. He's redeeming them. He's making a statement to them. Why would you worship these gods when you have me, the fountain of living waters? Why would you take stagnant water when you have me, the spring of all life? So what's his message to us in this sin? So if that was a message to them, what do we see? Well, we see today God is still in the process of gathering his people, his sheep, his elect. How is he doing it? Through the gospel. And through the gospel, he's calling them out and making a distinction. He's separating them for himself. John 10, 16. We were just in here a few months ago. And Jesus said, I have other sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. What is he doing? He's calling his people out of darkness into his light. And together as a church, corporately, the people of God, we come together and unite, and we burn hotter and shine brighter as we saw in our uh, Christmas candlelight service. You guys remember who came. You start with one candle, and then yet together you all start to burn, and yet the light all of a sudden fills up the room that was once full of darkness. So it is with the church. When you gather as children of the light with the people of God, we together corporately shine brighter than any one of us would individually. Praise God. And we truly become that city set on a hill that cannot be hid, and whose boundaries there is a clear, holy distinction between the world and the heavenly kingdom that's to come. And what's the message? If you do not trust in this Jesus this morning, if you do not trust in Christ, this is the message. You are outside the people of God. You're in Egypt. The good news is that you can come today because of Christ. You can come today and be in Goshen if you would not harden your heart. What else do we see? We see that with the people of God is the only safe place to be. See, as God made a distinction and Egypt's getting carnage and havoc wreaked all over them in judgment, the only safe place then as now is where? With the people of God. God is in the process of making a division between his children and the children of the world. And the only safe place to find refuge from the wrath to come is where? With God's people. How do you get in to be with God's people? Through the 
only entrance of the, of the sheep gate. Through Jesus. Through Jesus. We see that outside the church, there is no refuge or safety. And please know, when I say church, I'm not talking about these, these walls. I'm not talking about this building. The only place of refuge is with the church. The redeemed, blood-bought people of God. The Egyptian gods could not protect them from judgment. Greek gods will not protect you from judgment. Hawaiian gods, Hindu gods, Muslim gods, or any other god will not protect you. The only place of safety is with the people of Yahweh through Jesus Christ alone. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father but through me or by me. So I ask you this morning, Jesus is my Lord. Is he yours? Is he yours? Is he truly yours? As one pastor put it, the message we proclaim is the good news that the sinners of Egypt can enter the Goshen of redemption if only they will trust in Jesus Christ as their crucified and risen Lord. Amen? Amen. So God's redeeming his people. And number three, he's refusing to compromise. So this plague is actually the first plague that we also see Mo, uh, Pharaoh begin to budge a little bit. After the swarm of flies comes, Pharaoh just has enough, I guess, and he calls Moses in, and he starts to attempt to negotiate with Moses. What does he tell him to do? Take the people and worship where? Within the land. You don't have to leave to worship, right? I mean, we hear this all the time in our culture. I mean, I don't, I don't have to leave. I don't have to go any special place to worship, right? Can't I just worship wherever I am? We'll talk about that in a minute. Well, what's Pharaoh doing? In essence, Pharaoh's doing damage control. See, Pharaoh has a PR problem. He's got a public relations problem. What's his public relations problem? Well, it's kind of an issue because Pharaoh's supposed to be this type of god. And part of what Pharaoh's supposed to do as a god is do what? Protect his people. And all of a sudden, his people are just getting owned by this new god in town, Yahweh. Pharaoh's got a public relations problem. So now he's trying to compromise with Moses to save face. Because if he can negotiate, if he can bargain and get some of these plagues drawn away, then he can still come out as what? As a god. Look what I did. I worked deliverance. It's okay. Yahweh's gone. I mean, I can still come out on top here. He's doing damage control. But our God, as we know, will accept no other gods before him or with him. He will not share his glory with another, and he will not negotiate. When he says, let my people go, he expects what? Let them go. Moses responds to Pharaoh with two arguments. The first one's practical. Basically, uh, we can't offer sacrifices that you guys find abominable. Because what will happen if we do that? See, they were going to sacrifice cows and rams and, and all these types of things, the very things that the Egyptians worshipped. And if they see us doing this, they're going to stone us. In essence, would we go roast a Kalua pig and an emu in front of a Muslim mosque? Probably not going to go very well. And that's exactly what Moses says. Like, this isn't going to go well. That's his first argument. It's practical. His second argument is essentially we must worship God the way he tells us. 
It's not about pragmatism. It's about obedience. So Pharaoh sweetens the offer. The deal gets even better. He offered them to go sacrifice in the wilderness. Okay, okay. You can go out of the land, but what? Don't go very far. What's that about? Don't go too far to where I can't keep my eye on you and maintain control over you and send my army after you and bring you back if need be. He's still trying to compromise. Can you imagine the temptation for Moses? I mean, this is Shark Tank. Deal or no deal. Right? You can see the the ample justification. Guys, this is the sweetest deal I think we're going to get. I mean, it's, it's not three days' journey, but we're out of Egypt, and, and maybe God will set us free after that. Maybe, I mean, you can see the pull here. But Moses knew something that Pharaoh didn't. See, Moses knew by experience, having almost been killed or lost his child himself, that God's people must do what God commands as he commands it. God doesn't compromise or negotiate. Nothing but absolute surrender to his commands will do. So what's our final takeaways? As a Christian, as a church, the corporate people of God, whoo, you ready? Are you sure? You want me to go here? I can end the sermon right here. I end the sermon right here, pray, walk away, you have a good Sunday. I continue on, Conviction City. All right, let's do it. You asked for it. Your silence is consent. What's the takeaways? There are significant amount of people who want the benefits of worship without the cost of it. You want all that religion has to bring, community, family, benefits, without the cost of it, which is obedience. We want to worship on Sunday, and then we want the world Monday through Saturday. Ouch yet? See, you want to have a semblance of a relationship with God, but you want to come on your own terms instead of on His terms. In other words, one pastor said it like this, I want to make sacrifices as long as I don't have to leave Egypt. And you know Spurgeon says it the best, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He says everything the best. I quote, God demands, his demand is not that his people should have some little liberty, some little rest in their sin. No, but that they should go right out of Egypt. Christ did not come into the world merely to make our sin more tolerable, but to deliver us right away from it. He did not come to make hell less hot or sin less damnable or our lust less mighty, but to put all these things far away from his people and work out a full and complete deliverance. Christ does not come to make people less sinful, but to make them leave off of sin altogether, not to make them less miserable, but to put their miseries right away and give them joy and peace in believing in Him. The deliverance must be complete, or else there shall be no deliverance at all. End quote. You should read Spurgeon if you don't. Kahalui Baptist. We must determine to put sin far from us 
and refuse to compromise or negotiate God's standards. Now, this call for compromise or to negotiate is going to come both from within and without. It's going to come from internal and external to compromise God's commands. The call is going to come from outside the church and even from more and more Christians to compromise God's standards. Now, there's a lot of ways which the call will come from us to compromise. From Christendom, it'll be to compromise that Jesus is the only way to compromise his divinity, to compromise the exclusivity of the gospel or the necessity of the gospel. From the world, the call is going to ring louder and louder to compromise God's standards. And and the hot topic in our culture right now is what? Marriage and relationships. Marriage and relationships. To compromise marriage, how? By cohabitation. Cohabitation basically takes the benefits of the covenant without the covenant, and it dishonors God and distorts marriage and the gospel message, more importantly. We'll be called to to compromise through divorce or so-called same-sex marriage. The voice will get louder and is getting louder and louder in the months, and it will become louder in the years to come for us to be an open and affirming church. People will say things like, well, They're already saying things, actually, like, you can still worship God and be lesbian or gay. That's no no conflict with my faith in God. Or God is a God of love and acceptance. Stop being so radical or hardline or fringe. Or we're just being who God made us to be and on and on. The call to compromise will become louder. The temptation to compromise in all these areas will be stronger and stronger. But we must let God's word be our guide, not the culture. Not the culture. And furthermore, we must be willing to bear the reproach that comes with it. To bear the reproach that comes with it. This is one area to compromise that's coming from outside. How about from inside? Well, the temptation to compromise and sin will come from within your own selves. How? How? This is how. By choosing not to forsake sin entirely and instead keep it at arm's length. How else? By putting temptation to sleep instead of putting it to death. By making reasonable accommodations against sin instead of radical steps against it. Wasn't that a reasonable accommodation that Pharaoh offered? Just don't go very far. We can find common ground, and yet we do this with our sin. Don't, don't make reasonable accommodations against it. Not radical. You don't need to cut your hand off or pluck out your eye, like Jesus said. And he was speaking hyperbole. The temptation to compromise will come from the thought that maybe Egypt can satisfy me. Maybe sin does have something for me rather than obedience to God. Right? Moses and the people could have easily, easily justified their actions at 
Anytime we disobey, there will be a litany of reasons that you will put on top as to justify your actions, and still in the end, you will be dead wrong. See, not only do we compromise God's standards, but when we compromise God's standards, we lessen our own joy. God is only asking His people to do what would bring them maximum joy. And this is what the battle of sin and temptation is. This is what it's always been, is that it plants the seed of doubt. It whispers to us in our ear so sweetly that God is withholding from you. He's withholding from you. It may be, beloved, it may be, for those here, it may be that the reason you have suffered greatly, the reason you have not really changed or grown in your relationship with Christ is because you refuse to leave Egypt. It may be that the reason you haven't made strides in your godliness, it may be, not always, that you refuse to leave Egypt, that you want to worship within the land. You refuse to follow Christ completely and have compromised instead of obeyed. True story. I have come across stories, far, far too many people, far too many individuals who come and, and they want the benefits of change, but they don't actually want to change. They want everybody around them to change, but they don't actually want to change themselves. And when you tell them what God would have them to do, they look at you and make excuses. They look at you like you're crazy sometimes. Well, you don't understand. You've not been where I've been. You couldn't possibly. It's different for me. I know that sounds like good for everybody else, but I'm different. My situation's different. I'm an exception. So I'm going to do things my way. Thank you, Pastor, but no thank you. I'm going to walk away and do things my way. And as a result, nothing changes. And they continue in the same pattern of disobedience and hardship that led them there in the first place. And often it gets worse and worse and sadly continue to blame everybody else. Many, many people want the benefits of change without changing themselves. Consider this morning whether you are holding on to Egypt, beloved. In what area, in what way, does God want you to forsake it and leave Egypt altogether this morning? Now, if you're feeling convicted, I told you we'd be in Conviction City. If you're feeling convicted this morning, don't ignore it. That's what Pharaoh did. He hardened his heart. It just got harder and harder. Don't ignore it. God has you here because he means to redeem you entirely and completely. Amen. So I want to close with Romans 13, 14, all. Romans 13, 14, to all. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Beloved, would you come out of Egypt and gather with God's people of God and the land of redemption in Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do not want to compromise or negotiate 
when it comes to your commands and our joy. May we not settle for lesser, lesser pleasures. Lord, may you draw your people this morning out of sin into greater and greater depths of relationship with Christ. And as we see and behold your power, may we be transformed into your image and likeness. And Lord, would you strengthen our faith, we pray. Lord, I ask that you would set your sons, your daughters, your people free from the shackles of sin this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.